many different products that are already being targeted towards companion animals that are kefir based, um, which is a fermented dairy beverage, or even yogurt based, or I'm sure you guys have talked about on the podcast, but um, you know, pet foods that have pro- probiotics or postbiotics, things that are technically supplemented into the diet um, to have, you know, other effects on the dog's or cat's health. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Well, welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast. Um, Of course, we're here with experts in the pet food industry and the nutrition of pet foods. I'm very pleased to be with Brianna Mitris today. Uh, we're going to talk about some uh, specific new ingredients and, and uh, sort of perhaps even how that might influence pet nutrition. And then I, I'd be very interested in talking with Dr. Mitris about her career path and how she got to where she is today. So if you would start that, Dr. Mitris, why don't you just tell us who, where you are and, and how you got to that place. Yeah. So hello, everybody. My name is Brianna Mitris. I'm working. I have my PhD in getting my registered dietitian. Right now, I am at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, although I originally hail from Boston, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up and where I did my undergrad. And so I'm here now finishing my degrees and, you know, I'm looking forward to what the future holds. I'm currently doing my dietetic internship, which is part of the requirements of becoming a practicing dietitian. And so I'm juggling a lot at the moment, but it's very fun. I'm at the end of my schooling. So it's been a nice kind of closure period for me. Leading pet food manufacturers, renderers, and ingredient suppliers recognize that Kemen is assurance. Every day they deliver specialized expertise, innovative products, and unrivaled support through the pet food and rendering value chain. From oxidation control and food safety to palatability and nutrition, all the way through a suite of tailored services that allow you to feel supported from start to finish to ensure you're getting the most from Kemen ingredients. That's why every step of the way, Kemen Nutrisurance is your partner in pet food and rendering ingredients. What made you get interested in this? How did you decide that this was a career for you? Yeah, so when I did my undergraduate degree in biochemistry, And I also worked as a server in Boston restaurants and like fine dining. So I have a very strong passion for food and food science and kind of how those how the different parts and components of food really affect us inside and out. And so when I was taking my biochemistry courses, as soon as we started learning about vitamins and minerals, I was like, oh, this seems a little bit more applicable. And then I did a bunch. I did a lot of research in organic chemistry labs And that was a huge disconnect for me because I really wanted to be working with people or making an impact on other people or dogs and cats 
and their health. And I really didn't feel like I could do that from the bench in the lab. So I decided to pursue my um, PhD in nutritional sciences at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And Dr. Kelly Swanson is my advisor, and he does um, a lot of companion animal nutrition research. Um, but he also, in addition, does have a small section of his research focused on um, applications in um, like mouse models, as well as um, in vitro experiments that could be translated to you know other clinical models. And so for me, that was a perfect fit because I got to apply my nutrition um, passion to this field, but also it gave me a chance to kind of grow my knowledge base from not just humans, but in addition to cats and dogs and companion animals. So it's been a great experience for me to, you know, ex like try different things and get to understand how the different fields work, but most importantly, how they connect with each other. Cause there's a lot more similarities than we realize um, in terms of marketing and consumers and different products. So I didn't, it doesn't really matter where you start if it's humans or animals, you know, it's kind of what you find, learn along the way. Well, that sounds great. It's, it's, you know, it is nutrition and, and sort of, uh, obviously there's a tremendous overlap in the monogastric nutrition area between human nutrition and dog and cat nutrition. Um, although I always sort of smile and say, yeah, but cats are still very unique <laughs> because cats yes. are, are probably a little further away in that continuum. Now, mm -hmm. You worked, and I know we were chatting even before we started this, you were working with fermented foods. And, yes. you know, that's a lot of people maybe uh, sort of familiar with fermented foods. Uh, I think a kimchi pretty quickly or, or some other uh, foods, but but in pet nutrition, maybe not so common. So tell us about that. What did you see of interest and the background first, and then we'll maybe dive a little bit into the results, because I think that's the kind of key of this podcast for me is, well, let's talk about this this new area, if you will. I've, I personally have never put a fermented food in a pet, uh, <laughs> in a pet, fermented food ingredient in a pet food. Um, so let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this research kind of was born out of my impatience of starting a research project with Dr. Swanson. Um, I really wanted to get into the lab and do an, a mouse study. And he was like, you have, we don't have time at this moment. So instead I went ahead and we did some evaluations of kefir products. And first we started with human products, but due to our lab's heavy hand in nutrition science and Kelly's, um, you know, well-known among industry as well, he had been aware of many different products that are already being targeted towards companion animals that are kefir-based, um, which is a fermented dairy beverage, or even yogurt-based, or I'm sure you guys have talked about on the podcast, but, um, you know, pet foods that have pro probiotics or postbiotics, things that are technically supplemented into the diet um, to have, you know, other effects on the dog's or cat's health. And so we really started to realize pretty quickly that it's a wild, wild west of A, you know, companion animal supplements, but B, um, the fermented food category and that whole new, new age era of supplements. And so upon, you know, further investigation, we realized that there's a lot, uh, well, there's not a lot of regulation, which is also true with human products of this nature, but that the claims of health were very grandiose um, in the pet food area, more so than I think we see in humans, because these products are able to utilize their whole website platform, their social media, in addition to their bottle, 
And consumers are really eager, you know, to give their pets the best nutrition possible. And if this new ingredient or new fermented food is the key to that, um, people will shell out and people will purchase those products. And so it was really important for us to take a minute and survey the field of what is out there for fermented foods for pets. Um, you know, you don't see a lot that is marketed outside of dairy products because dairy is a really common fermented food for many animals um, or mostly humans. But, you know, I've, my cat will eat the yogurt she, or he will eat the kimchi. Um, no, I'm sorry, not the kimchi. His name is kimchi, by the way, my cat. <laughs> Yeah, but he will eat the kefir, I meant to say. So, you know, they're not opposed to it. They, they'll they eat anything that their owners, you know, will provide them as a, quote, treat. Um, and what actually does to their gastrointestinal system, you know, are still we're still figuring that out as time goes. Um, but if we're starting to see, you know, benefits in terms of bioavailability, um, micronutrient density or, you know, microbial effects from humans, why not say that that could also happen potentially in animals who are consuming these? Well, that, that's certainly possible, isn't it? So there's a, a lot of here uh, to discuss. We, we, as I look at what you said, you talked about bioavailability. You talked about these prebiotics and postbiotics all sort of wrapped up in this fermented ingredient. Um, so let's break that down first. Let's tell, tell you, remind us again, what you mean when you say prebiotic and postbiotic and how that might be influenced by this fermented ingredient? Yeah. So prebiotics are a type of um, usually indigestible fiber that is to serve a benefit of, to the host when consumed. Um, these prebiotics are usually fuel for microbes in our body due to the lack of enzymes humans have or animals as well to break down this fiber. And so the term prebiotic is essentially meaning like fuel for the microbes in your body that um, can be beneficial to you. Um, and then postbiotics can be, I can't remember the exact definition, but it's basically an inactivated um, bacteria. And so they're, even though they're not active, the dead cell bodies and the dead bacteria that are remaining in the product can actually ex exert an effect as well. And so how those actually do it, we're still looking into it. And I think postbiotics, at least as I use it too, also includes not only those those uh, bacterial components, but the the sort of milieu that comes out of bacteria. So you could look at something yeah. like butyric acid as a postbiotic, right? That that the bacteria made has, has value to the pet or, or the person, mm -hmm. um, as we've yeah. discussed, these are common. Well, how do you sort of know what's good? I mean, what, how would you, how would you evaluate this to know if there's, if there really is a benefit? So we can evaluate the product in terms of the product's accuracy in itself of being, um, you know, efficacious and truthful and having integrity in terms of, you know, stating what they have and what's actually in the product. But then we can also look at what's beneficial in terms of the physiological outcomes that we have on the animals. And so a lot of research, at least for animal studies, I'm sure as you know, are done um, with like lab animals that are typically very healthy. And so when we see benefits of fermented foods in people, usually there's some kind of pre-existing health condition that is improved. Maybe that's um, your A1C level for diabetes or hypertension levels or blood pressure, blood lipids. And so in order to test these, also test these measures in dogs or cats, um, we would need a population that is not exactly physiologically perfect. And so when we do our research with our research dogs, 
um, they are really well taken care of and they're really healthy. So measuring physiological differences can be tricky, but we can still look at how modulation of their gut microbiome via fecal collection um, is happening. So it still gives us an insight um, as to what is changing, what's being affected, what microbes are thriving or not, um, you know, and how that can be extrapolated into other scenarios for, you know, the average pet consumer. Well, that is fascinating. I, I think we should we should at least contemplate it, maybe chat about it a bit, was what you're saying is we feed to the normal pet, right? So we're feeding a population of pets. We try and hit that that optimum mean, really. And yet a lot of the action is at the extremes so that perhaps... Yes. That that extremes and testing that extreme gets really hard because because you know say you have even a a, a population of, of of normal pets out there at the tail that might be one two percent of the population but but if you know if you're a pet nutritionist you may be feeding a few million pets by the food um, certainly those tails become pretty significant so what yeah. I heard you say is you're really kind of Oh, I don't know, wishing for? Are you measuring markers that might be indicative of that influence? And that, that marker was a change in the microbiota. Can, can you talk about that a little more? How do you measure that and what might you be looking for? Yeah. So looking at the microbiota is a way I like to describe it as kind of like a window into that person's health or that pet's health. And, you know, it's not, it's just a, it's just a, viewpoint. So it's not really indicating, um, you know, a certain health marker or disease or optimization. It's just like a single snapshot of that moment of time of what their gut microbiome looks like. And so in terms of, um, you know, health, we do look for specific um, bacterial species or genera that are associated with producing beneficial byproducts such as short-chain fatty acids. So these are a type of um, small compound that are volatile. And they actually serve as fuel sources for other microbes coexisting in the gut microbiome. So if we see um, some animals microbiome, um, like in, like we see their, their data um, and they tend to have more short chain fatty acid producing bacteria, um, for example, maybe butyrate, which is a really common but highly beneficial short chain fatty acid, then we know we can see that, okay, this animal has a balanced microbiome where we don't have certain harmful species overpowering um, beneficial ones and we still have a balance. And so looking at that is really important, but also looking at um, the predominance of different phyla. So within different micro in the microbiome, we have different phyla, bacteria. Um, most common in dogs is Fusobacterium, um, but we also see Firmicutes, Proteobacteria, and Bacteriota. And so the interchange of those larger fractions of microbe um, groups um, kind of also gives us a picture of how our intervention is really affecting their health in terms of that microbiota um, snapshot. No, I was just thinking, I wonder if we could talk about it a little bit that, you know, we, Dr. Swanson and others have, have been working around this, you know, how do we describe a healthy microbiota? Because it seems like yeah. You can have pets with very different microbiota and be quite healthy, where if anything, the, the consistency becomes in the unhealthy ones. They begin to really look alike, and, and the healthy ones can look really quite a bit different. Is that your perspective, or, or how, do you, yeah. how do you handle that? 
Yeah, and that's a great question because that's something that the FDA is also wrestling with at this moment. You know, how are you going to classify what is a healthy, you know, phenotype or healthy class of a microbiota when every individual, you know, has extremely different than their neighbor due to their diet, genetics, environment, and the same goes for pets. And so kind of being able to classify certain bacteria, um, you know, as being beneficial producers of short chain fatty acids is one way to look at it. Um, but then again, if in another context, for example, if a dog has like IBS or IBD and they're highly inflammatory um, and they're gastrointestinal, those beneficial bacteria are going to be much lower in terms of content. And so that's one way to look at it. But in terms of a like diagnosing perspective, um, the microbiome is kind of the after effect. So we see what's happening when we look at the microbiome, but we can't use that information as a tool to decide if that animal is healthy or not. It's more of an indicator of what they're where they're at the moment. I understand that makes sense to me. I, I do have to smile at once in a while, you can really tell if they're not healthy. If Heliobacter is 50% of everything you recovered, then it's yeah, not working well for that pet. Absolutely, yeah. Those extremes are really telling. Yes. Um, what, what do you think? Sometimes I wonder, and I wonder what your opinion is, is, is there kind of like gatekeeper, uh, small numbers, but wildly important uh, bacteria so that those bacteria really influence a whole spectrum of bacteria. But if you were doing them as a percentage, they're not going to show up very high. Um, is that, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I think that's possible in terms of like smaller existing um, microbes that maybe have a certain fitness to digest specific compounds or nutrients or phytochemicals. So that is a p potential. Um, I personally am not familiar with specific sure smallly existing um, species. But as technology gets better, um, we can really identify those smaller species by not just their species, but their strain. Because the strain yeah. is where the genetic fitness is kept. So something can be, you know, lactobacillus acidophilus as a species, but their strain of that different acidophilus is what really determines whether or not that microbe has the potential to break down a, a vitamin or a phytochemical or in this case, maybe digest an element of a postbiotic. Yeah. And so once we get better technology in terms of identifying the genetic fitness of these microbes that are existing in a small quantity, I think that we can try to optimize them to pair them with a specific diet or a specific nutrient supplement that they're you know, programmed or optimized to work with. Um, but at the time, at the moment, from my at least clinical experience, those smallly, very small existing microbes will have, for at, depending on the time, but mostly minor effects, just because it's a huge competition. It's a big old party in there. And so when you have such small um, amounts of one thing compared to the bigger groups of, you know, the commensal bacteria, it can be kind of hard for them to make a difference, but it's not impossible. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Interesting. Well, let's dive a little bit into your research. Now, you, you, you've published a couple of papers. Just tell us what, what you are studying and, and maybe what, what we should take away from those results. Yeah. So my research, I'm initially studying um, the fermented beverage kefir. And first, we looked at the product efficacy of kefir um, items on the market that are geared for companion animals. And so we analyzed, I think, six different kefir products that were targeted for dogs 
based on their label claims of microbial density. So how many live microbes will be in the product when you serve your dog, as well as the microbial ingredients. So what intentional microbes were added um, to this product that you are ideally serving your dog? And so our research really looked into, um, we extracted the DNA from these products to better understand what bacteria are there. Um, and we, we use this technology called loop sequencing, and it's a high throughput, long read um, 16S. So we read the whole um, uh, genetic region for those bacteria to really understand who was there. And we also cultured these products um, um, on agar that are beneficial for lactobacillus, as well as agar beneficial for yeast so that we can really get an idea of who's in this product and who's still alive. And so most of our research found that on average, the dog products were not fully accurate. Most commonly in the microbial content, um, many things were overstated, but as well as we found a lot of species that were not disclosed on their label. Now that is not at a fault of their own because they might not have the technology the university has, you know, to look into what is actually in these products. But moving forward in the fermented food space, you know, retaining this integrity is really important for consumer trust. Um, and we also found that a majority of the products do not have a lot of um, microbial viability at the point of consumption compared to what they claim. So many will say, oh, we have like 10 million or 1 billion live, you know, microorganisms at consumption, when reality is, at least with the pet products, many of them were under a million, um, and some of them didn't even meet our threshold. So we really didn't get a lot to grow. Now, we, of course, had a control. We used Chobani yogurt, and, you know, that met most of our it, – it passed all of our checks. So we are confident that our methods were okay, but, you know, it definitely begs the question of are the products okay, and, you know, should you be spending so much money on it if they're not quite what they say? And to kind of further and to see are they beneficial for dogs or not, we did an intervention study. Um, okay. Did you want to ask any questions about the first part? Yeah, if I could. So this is a study where, if I could summarize it, you were looking at a, a spectrum of products, and among other things, you were checking, are these microbes alive? And and you checked them being alive by um, actually trying to grow them in culture, which that's not an easy thing, right? So that's why you said, well, we have a positive control out there. So we know at least those microbes can be grown. Um, right. Do you think, like one of the problems I had back, oh, you know, so long ago, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, when we started looking at feeding the lower gut, we had a tremendous inability to grow the spectrum of microbes that were there. Um, and I know, mm -hmm. you know, certainly you do it better than we did in the 70s. Um, but still, that's hard, right? So the, some are commensal, some yes. are anaerobic, some do fine aerobic. And, and, and right. can you talk a little bit about, you know, why, why a consumer might believe that that test was at least a reasonable representative of what was actually there and alive. Right. Yeah. And so we really took steps to, you know, optimize our conditions so that we could really cultivate what was present. And just to note, you know, the microbes that are in kefir as a dairy product will vastly be different than those collected from a gut sample or from okay. a fecal sample. So culturing them, you know, it's I wouldn't say it's quite as challenging as culturing from, you know, an actual fecal sample. Oh, just that's, due to the fact point. that 
Yeah, they're predominantly lactobacillus, um, which is a very easy to grow and specific nutrients. Um, we use mana rose, um, mana rose uh, sharp agar, which is, you know, really common for lactobacillus. So we had confidence that we were going to grow the predominant species that were present. Um, and yes, we did end up having to grow them at in anaerobic conditions. So without oxygen in aerobic conditions due to the fact that there's a lot of preferences among those bacteria. In addition to that, we grew them at two different temperatures. I believe we did um, 30 degrees and 37 degrees Celsius to try to optimize and really capture different ends of the spectrum from like where their happy place was for, you know, growing over those two days. So we really did try and we also serially diluted the products where they're so highly condensed in terms of microbes. You can't just plate it as is. You're going to have a whole bunch of happy consuming microbes. So we had to serially dilute them by um, I think we ended up keeping the 10 to the 5 and 10 to the 7 um, reductions just because there's such a high concentration. And that's why you had the million cutoff at 10 to the 6. If you didn't have 10 to the 6, yes. then that reduction is just going to blow it away. Got it. Well, that sounds yeah. interesting. And so you feel comfortable that if you evaluated them, at least the lactobacillus, you could grow them and you showed that you could grow them by the positive control. So that just yeah. makes sense to me. So then... You, you went the next step, right? So it's nice to have a, an auger with lactobacillus growing, but, but you, you as a consumer or as, a, as, as an individual, you kind of go, well, what does it matter to the pet? And you actually fed these to the pet. So how did you do that and what were, what were your results? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so lactobacillus is an interesting micro because it's very common, like I said, in dairy products but it's a little bit less common within our own gut as gut commensals. They do exist, but you know, they're not the predominant species as at all. So when people are consuming um, probiotic supplements or fermented food supplements, a lot of the predominant species in those items are kind of like tourists. They're coming through our body, they're visiting, they're saying hello, and then they're leaving. You know, they don't really stick around very much. So the idea is to consume these products regularly um, to kind of see that effect by repeated exposure. So when we did our dog study, we had 12 healthy dogs and we did a three by three Latin square design. So we had um, three different treatment interventions. We used the commercial kefir, which is one of the ones that we an analyzed in the study um, that is actually produced in, I think, Bloomsburg, Indiana. And then we also made a freshly brewed grain kefir. So traditionally, kefir is brewed from the inoculation of these bacterial grains. They're, they're just like a co coagulation of, you know, bacterial species that look like a grain. Um, and you basically, you inoculate the milk with these grains and let them sit on the counter for 24 hours. The resulting product will be a very effervescent, a little sour, a little tart, but really refreshing beverage. And so there's a lot of just, I guess, discrepancy in the world of research, whether or not it's the, a lot of intervention studies are actually using the grain kefir or the commercial kefir, like what we tested, because their microbial profiles are extremely different. Their food matrices are relatively similar, but in terms of um, nutrients, exopolysaccharides, byproducts, proteins, they're vastly different. So their beneficial effects could also be contrasted. So we gave these dogs um, one of those two products. In addition, we did a milk control which we treated with lactase because dogs don't really like lactose very much. Right. <laughs> so we wanted to cover our ground. We didn't want to clean up any messes. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. So, um, and the way I administered it is we gave it 
we gave the dogs this the intervention twice a day for 28 days um, in each period. So there's three periods. And basically, I weighed out their food like we do normally for each dog. And I would pour uh, 30 milligrams of that beverage on top of their food. And we did yep. that for breakfast and dinner. So they were consuming it twice a day for 28 days straight before we did, we switched treatments. Um, and so that was how it went. And they really enjoyed it. The dogs were not picky. They loved the milk. They loved both kefirs. So that was a huge relief. You know, that would have been a yeah. tough study if they didn't want to eat that. Yeah. Um, but they, they, there was no complaints. There was all clean bowls. So that was a pretty successful intervention in that element. <laughs> and what were your results then? What did you measure as a response variable and how did those change if they changed? So our, we measured um, blood metabolites. So serum markers in the blood, such as um, like uh, lipids, glucose, um, different uh, protein presence or not, such as like C-reactive protein. Um, we also measured immunoglobulin A which is a marker of mucosal integrity as well as immune functioning. So we re were really hoping that, you know, immunoglobulin A would have been affected because that would at least show some kind of immune optimization with these already healthy dogs. Uh, we also measured, measured short-chain fatty acid production from their fresh fecal samples that we did on the last day of the study. Um, and we looked at their gut microbiota as well. So the, there are several different markers of that in addition to, you know, total digestibility of the diet. Um, but we expect kefir to be very digestible because it's, you know, mostly water, high protein, maybe some sugars. And so that wasn't a big worry. But so as our results, we didn't see a lot, any physiological differences among the treatment groups. So that was a little surprising, but also, like I said previously in our conversation, Dogs are healthy. So, you know, seeing improvements in their inflammation or blood lipids or glucose tolerance or in inflammatory markers, um, you know, they're already in a pretty good normal range. So to see those be optimized from a simple product intervention was unlikely. So unfortunately, we didn't see any difference with that. But we did see um, a couple of diff significant differences in the um, gut microbiome space. Most notably was um, a, an increase with the traditional kefir intervention and lacto lactobacillus, or sorry, lactococcus. And so lactococcus lactis is a um, bacteria that's predominant in the commercial kefir product, but also predominant in the traditional product. And so the fact that it might have colonized in by giving it to the dogs repeatedly through the traditional kefir, but not the commercial was pretty interesting to us because like I said previously, many probiotic fermented food interventions do not result in colonization. They're kind of passing through, inserting their effects and leaving the system. And so we saw almost, we saw about 0.39% presence of, you know, the lacto lactococcus, which is not um, insignificant by any means. You know, we do have, like we talked about, lots of bacterial species and some at very tiny levels, but something that's you know over zero point one percent of a mic of a of the presence of a whole is something that we definitely pay attention to as researchers. So that was the major um, output for that. And so although it it might seem insignificant in terms of applying that to a dog who is um, having experiencing inflammatory diseases or symptoms, having a, a increase in, you know, maybe an anti-inflammatory bacteria like lactococcus could be, um, you know, interesting or potentially something that could help their symptoms down the road. But we definitely need more research to see that.
So you saw in those healthy pets, you saw a benefit in the, in the shifting uh, makeup of the microbiota, but the more research is really needed to say, yes, but in that unhealthy pet, maybe out there in the fringes where we were talking before, that would that would turn out to be a, a whole pet benefit. I wondered and if you said something that, that intrigued me. I wondered if you could dive a little deeper into it. You talked about this, was it anti-inflammatory uh, sort of response from from a microbe? I mean, what? how does that work? Yeah. So microbes will produce um, something called a cytokine, or it's basically a chemical signal that kind of will ex- communicate with the surrounding immune system to give a little bit of a gauge of where that particular area of the body is at. So when anti-inflammatory or signals that, you know, indicate we don't have any reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress um, that, you know, we're trying to tamper down an effect of inflammation, you know, that is a sign and that's a sign that, you know, there's something going on that is more active rather than passive with this intervention or with this species. And not to demonize inflammation in any way. Inflammation is happening right now in our bodies. It's always going to be there. It's a part of the balance of our homeostasis. And so sometimes we don't want an entirely anti-inflammatory response as a whole. But when you're feeding a dog or something that is already experiencing symptoms of inflammation, having some agent that might reduce that and create that balance again could be helpful. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Learn how InnovaFeed's Helusia protein and oil for pets can unlock a more sustainable and performant future for pet foods at InnovaFeed.com forward slash Helusia. ProAmpac, your companion in pet packaging. Visit pets.proampact.com to explore our innovative, sustainable solutions, such as our QuadFlex recyclable flat bottom bags, ProDura poly woven bags, ProEvo recyclable paper bags with grease resistance, and our proactive recyclable film and pouches that run at optimum speeds on your felling equipment. Elevate your wet food, treats, and kibble brand by utilizing packaging that safeguards and preserves product freshness. Trust ProAmpact for packaging that cares for your pets and the planet. Pets.ProAmpact.com I understand. So inflammation imbalance is what we want. A zero inflammation would probably be uh, death. Um, I always use yeah. We the, can't we can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, the, I always use the fire in the fireplace. We we want that. We get a benefit from that. It, it escapes from that, and and that's when you know out of control is not good. You know, I wonder, you know, then would you talk about or, or did you measure? I can't remember. Did you measure cytokines in your response? And or would that be like another another step? Yeah. In this particular study, we didn't. Um, but it would be a great opportunity to, you know, take this experimental design and look into that. Yes. Um, like I said, due to the fact that we're working with healthy dogs, you know, we're not going to see a lot of um, improvements. But in terms of overall production or reduction in inflammatory ones, um, that would be great. There's been research um, with humans in terms of consuming fermented foods, where we do see a whole whole cohort shift of 
decline in, in, in inflammatory cytokines. So it'd be very interesting to see if, you know, this pattern is also existing in other animals or other models with specifically kefir. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? A, a good, a good next step. Any research project or area always sort of shows the light where we might go next. I liked your illustration of the window. I've, I've used that myself where, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. the window opens, you look through it, but you see only part. And so you want to, yeah. you want to observe more and understand more. And certainly that indication of what would happening with the cytokines um, either circulating mm-hmm. or upon stimulus, right? So there's some work that could be done where you isolate the immune cells and 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 look at how they respand to a, 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 a LPS or some stimulation that would uh, perhaps yeah. be affected by the fermented foods. Yeah, we were. I, I think the be- we were really hoping to see some kind of effect in IgA or immunoglobulin A to kind of justify further um, cytokine research or, you know, immune cell research. So yeah, we weren't able to pursue it in that study, but yeah, in the future, that would be a great place to look. Sure. Yeah. Well, I wonder as you look back at your time and and I always ask this question to people, I wonder if you'd kind of think through it with me, you know, you've been involved with a number of teams. You've been been in a very successful research environment there. What would you say were, were the basis of that? Can you can you draw any kind of thoughts that would say, you know, this is what I perceive as a really, really valuable uh, thing for, for pet food scientists to be involved in a, in a career? What would you be looking for? Yeah, um, I think that well, first of all, the University of Illinois, we have excellent um, animal research here. We also have a vet school that, you know, watches over our dogs. So that really assisted a lot of our research and, you know, making sure that everything that we were not doing was being taken care of well. Um, so we really only had to worry about our intervention. Um, but also, I feel like mentorship is really important in terms of where you do choose to pursue your education. And so Dr. Kelly Swanson is a great mentor. He's very positive, interested, enthusiastic, but also has his um, finger on the press of like what's going on in the pet nutrition world at the moment. So, you know, that's been a really beneficial element to kind of have as part of this career, Um, but also having a supportive lab, um, you know, people that are similarly um, motivated, you know, to do their own work, but also help move the team forward. Um, has been extremely invaluable too. You know, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's fun, isn't it, when you see the sum of those parts coming together and being so much greater than just the individuals would have been. That's that's great mm-hmm. success in a lot of a lot of ways. Yeah. So what's the future look like? What do you want to do as you as you walk out of this uh, esteemed ivory tower? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's something I'm working on right now. Um, you know, originally I I do I have a lot of experience of in course coursework, and I'm a cert- certified in policy in terms of um, pet food, but also human nutrition. And so, working on some form of dietary regulations or guidelines would be best case scenario. Um, but I've recently realized that. Um, you can't actually apply for a government position until after you graduate. And so since I have a graduation coming up, um, you know, that's something that I might have to table for the moment. So I'm also considering looking at um, a couple of postdoc opportunities. I'm from Boston and, you know, there's a great opportunity at one of the schools there. I don't want to jinx myself, but, um, 
you know, that do are doing like really good work in terms of policy, but also nutrition interventions for low income and obese people in the city of Boston. So that would be great. But, you know, right now I also do a lot of work with probiotics and, you know, from the fermented food market. And so working for potentially a yogurt company or some kind of industry company that is working to develop either better or more precise fermented foods or precision fermentation, um, you know, that would also be a great utilization of my education. But because I get the RD, PhD, I definitely have strong inclinations of counseling privately as well. So I really love that people element that you get from, you know, just seeing people like we're doing right now that like really feeds me with energy. And like, you know, I just that's what I love. I live off of that, you know, so having a desk job is one thing, but working with people day in, day out would be the best case scenario. Wow. So definitely not working remotely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand. So it's good to know that about yourself too, because some things that uh, might seem really valuable to another doesn't wouldn't fit what you've just described. So best of luck with that. I wondered if right. if you wanted to talk a little bit about those. You, you know, I'm back into these fermented uh, ingredients that that um, might be, and I don't obviously I'm not asking for individual names of ingredients, but if I was a consumer and I, I, I sort of looked at your research and said, you know, and maybe I find success self-consuming these fermented foods and, and I'd like to impart that to my pet, what might they look for? And, and I'm, again, not names, but, but you know, what, what might they look for to say, this is one I want, I want to buy? Yeah. So I feel like, first of all, if you're going to buy some kind of fermented food, it better be refrigerated. There's a lot of times where you're going to see them shelf stable um, or, you know, they've just been sitting in a bottle and you just have to open it and you're ready to go. Um, those are unfortunately are not the most, the best purchases just because they have not, we don't know in terms of research that that's a great storage method from what we've seen. It's not. Um, and same with um, dehydration or compression of supplements when you are compressing a microbe, you know, you're really affecting its composition into a, sp like into a smaller space than it really needs to exist. And so looking at pills or supplements in that form, I would also not be the first to recommend that. I would definitely go for something that's refrigerated, fresh, um, but also ones that are not trying to claim too much on their label. If they say, you know, we're going to cure this dog's heart disease and fix its coat health and you know, all these grandiose claims that, you know, can't really be proven. For me, that's a big red flag. I'm like, okay, they they need to stay in their lane. And the fact that they're not, you know, kind of shows me where their priorities might lie. I really enjoy like products that are more research based and research developed because they can be a lot more accurate and, you know, less exaggerate. <laughs> like they don't exaggerate as much with what these different, these effects can actually be. Um, but, you know, research will come along and I hope one day there will be regulated health claims for like, for example, pet supplements like we do see for humans, um, not enough in the supplement industry for humans as well, but there's always room for improvement and growth. And I hope that, you know, with my work and my hopefully my career, we can, you know, work on getting that more clarified for the consumer. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I like those points that, that sure rings true to me. What if, as a consumer, though, I follow that, I, I buy the best one I, I can, and now I'm feeding my pet, 
how would I know that this is a benefit? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, (laughs) it's a great question. It depends on what you're looking for. I feel like right now, a lot of these benefits are really minute, you know, unless you're getting regular blood work done for your pet and your micro sample, like sequencing their microbiome every couple of weeks. Other than that, you know, it's kind of hard to get real heavy takeaways. I'm like, okay, this is actually making a difference. Um, in terms of like, there have been, you know, in, in vitro studies that, you know, some of these proteins and fermented foods that, you know, are specifically coming from, for example, traditional um, kefir, might improve like certain elements of, you know, skin health or might improve elements of insulin resistance and or sensitivity. And so those are the kind of things that you could test, you know, maybe by visually looking at the the skin or the coat of that dog, but you know, identifying yeah, but identifying that that is the reason just the probiotic will is very difficult to do. Sure. And, and as a consumer, you know that you always have an N01 and it's an open study. It's not the same thing as you've done yeah. there. But, you know, I can see looking at that and saying, okay, maybe even with today's prices, it's not so unusual to think I could do a microbiota out of a fecal and, and sort of run that every once in a while. And, and if, if skin and coat started looking better, and I would think stool quality would be something one would hope for that that, that yeah. would be improved. Um so yeah, that mm-hmm. all that all kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I've I've enjoyed our discussion. I wonder if you just had any other thoughts about you know, say someone was interested in, and I know you had this great experience, but just in general in the pet food area and and uh, perhaps uh, pursuing that as pet food science. What would you tell that individual? Yeah, I would definitely tell them to figure out what they're passionate about. Me, particularly, I've always really enjoyed fermented foods and, you know, finding a way to kind of merge that passion with an impact or, you know, finding how that could connect to a consumer or a companion animal um, has really been the peanut butter and jelly, you know, because I'm really passionate about one thing and to help other people or animals in a a research facet um, is the best way. So, you know, really identifying what gets you going, what really, you know, lights you up, and then how you can bring that to the pet food industry um, is would be key, in my opinion. And, you know, there's many different ways to do that. But, you know, through research, and then getting a job, you know, you can be on a, um, an interdisciplinary team, or work with a team of pet nutrition scientists, you know, to really kind of get your ideas off the ground, or even, you know, provide that valuable insight to that interest that you do have. No, thank you. I, I think that makes sense and would be good advice for for someone who is interested in pursuing this career. Mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you for being with us. I think this is a fascinating area, one where there's a lot of opportunity as we as we do investigate fermented foods for for ourselves and for our pets. Um, I, I'll look mm-hmm. forward to to that developing and perhaps your leadership as you bring that along and always difficult with the regulatory aspect we we have Duchea right and so that's uh, that's mm-hmm. out there and, and the pet space maybe aligns or doesn't align with that I'm not even sure um, but yeah I don't much, think so not, not the way we hope yes, yes much, much to come. come for sure thank you for your time and we'll look forward to your 
success in the future. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciated the conversation. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.